Our speaker tonight is Peter L. Berger. Born in Vienna, Berger is currently the Professor Emeritus of Religion, Sociology, and Theology at Boston University. He co-authored the book, The Social Construction of Reality, a treatise in the sociology of knowledge, widely considered one of the most influential texts on the sociology of knowledge. The book was named by the International Sociological Association as the fifth most influential book written in the field of sociology during the 20th century. It played a central role in the development of social construction. Tonight, Dr. Berger will speak to us about his recent publication, The Many Altars of Modernity, Toward a Paradigm for Modernity and Religion in a Pluralist Age, a book in which he outlines a new paradigm for understanding religion and pluralism in an age of multiple modernities. Please join me in welcoming Professor Berger. Um, I'm going to talk to you about religion, which I hope you're interested in, otherwise you're in the wrong place. Uh, and I will, um, well, one, one other person whose wisdom I like to live by is Mark Twain. And one thing that Mark Twain said, the problem with people, well, not he wrote, not said, maybe he also said it, uh, the problem with people is not what they think, it's what they think which ain't so. And I'm going to talk about two things that many people think about religion which ain't so. Uh, one is that we live in a secular world, which empirically is a mistake. Uh, some of you may know the book by a very distinguished Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, who wrote a book called The Secular Age, which is already wrong in its title. It's a huge book, it has over 700 pages. If you throw it at somebody, you can be charged with manslaughter. It has some interesting passages. He's a very distinguished philosopher, but the title is very misleading. So that I'm gonna tell you ain't so. We don't live in a secular age, we live in, we live in a pluralist age, which is something very different, and is a challenge to every religious tradition. Uh, it's not that there's no God anymore, it's there are too many gods. And that confronts both individuals and institutions, and the state, not least, with very interesting problems. Um, since I'm talking about religion, I should uh, tell you that uh, uh, my own religious views are irrelevant to this. I speak as a social scientist, uh, which means you try to go by the data and objectively I'm a sociologist, objectively try to explain what the world is like. But um, it's usually to tell people, most of you probably have no idea who I am, I should tell you full disclosure, I'm not an atheist or agnostic, uh, I'm also not a religious fundamentalist, I'm what I call, I'm an incurable Lutheran. Despite various attempts to cure me, I'm still incurably Lutheran, but in a very I think, open-minded and uh, uh, liberal way. So in that case, let me begin. We don't live in a secular world, we live in a pluralist world. Uh, when I started out uh, doing sociology of religion, which I've done through most of my career, uh, everyone around me thought, uh, believed what was then called, well, still called secularization theory 
which is very, was very common among social scientists, historians, philosophers. And uh, basically, what its key proposition is very simple. The more modernity, the less religion. Religion and modernity don't go together. The more modernized the society is, the less religious it is. For some people, that was wishful thinking. It was a basic idea of the European Enlightenment. Uh, religion is a big illusion, and uh, the enlightened modern person is not religious. And some people were not uh, happy about this at all. Um, in fact, the Pope thinks we live in a secular age, and he thinks Christians have to be mobilized against that secularism. Well, with all due respect, he's mistaken. It may be true in Europe, where he now lives. I don't think it's true in Argentina, but in most of the world, it isn't true at all. So whether you like the idea that modernity means less religion, or whether you are unhappy about it, from the point of view of which I'm speaking here, it's, it's another issue. The issue is, is it correct? It ain't so, or is it so? And I think for most of the world, it ain't so. Why am I saying this? It took me about 25 years of my career. I was already in middle age when I realized this doesn't hold. Empirically, the world, it's not valid. It's valid empirically in two places. One is geographical. It's, if it's correct anywhere in the world, it's correct in Western and Central Europe. Why this is has to be explained. It can be explained, let me reassure you. With a British colleague, I wrote a book about this a few years ago. It can be explained. I'll divulge to you what I think the basic explanation is. It's not a mystery. Uh, yes, Europe is very secularized. However you define secularity, not religious. Uh, the other is there's an international intelligentsia especially people trained in the humanities and social sciences who tend to be non-religious. Uh, people in, in social science now call it the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. People who, when asked what's your religious affiliation, they say none. Okay? We know something about them. We have studies of them. Um, most uh, people in, uh, in academia, in those, especially in those disciplines, uh, tend to be nuns. And that also has to be explained, and it can be, but that's not my topic today. You have to take my word for it. I have good reasons to say that we don't live in a secular age. In fact, most of the world is as religious as it ever was, and some parts are more religious than ever. Uh, Every major religious tradition in the world has been going through a religious revival. Uh, some more uh, forcefully than others. There are two, if you look at worldwide religion, which is my basic business, uh, there are two enormous explosions of religious passion. One is very well known, and that is resurgent Islam which unfortunately mainly intrudes on people's consciousness now as terroristic, which it is. That's a serious problem. But uh, it would be a mistake to identify that entire enormous upsurge of, of Islamic thought and piety with uh, the murderous terrorists. For millions of people, Islam has become or become again 
a source of meaning and guidance and comfort in life. And that's very important to understand, also important politically to understand. Most Muslims are not jihadists. They may sympathize vaguely with some of the goals of holy war, but they don't really like their methods. They don't like them. They don't live like that. That's well known, though I think often misunderstood, unfortunately. The other, which many of you sociologically can make some guess where you are from culturally, uh, since you come to this place, uh, is less well known. Uh, and that's evangelical Protestantism. There is enormous explosion, not of Protestantism in general, but evangelical Protestantism. Uh, all over the world, the most powerful branch of that is Pentecostalism, which is all the basic features of evangelical Protestantism, strong conversion experience, belief in prayer, literal approach to the Bible, with some adds-on. The two adds-on are speaking in tongues, which is, uh, which is being born again on steroids. In other words, you, the Holy Spirit takes possession of you and you speak the language of angels. And even more interesting for most people who become a, uh, 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 Pentecostal, uh, spiritual healing. Every, depending where you are, every Tuesday afternoon from four to six, uh, people are healed when you come to the sanctuary. Uh, some people even claim you can be raised from the dead. Whether this is true or not is not for me to say, but if people believe it, it has some significance to their lives. Uh, that is enormous. Now, Protestantism in general is the largest uh, religious affiliation in the world. Uh, the one place I more or less trust for religious surveys, I'm skeptical of religion being studied by questionnaires, but they do it very intelligently. It's a Pew Research Center, which is located in Washington, but they do research all over the world. They are mostly funded by the Pew Foundation. And um, uh, they've estimated that um, worldwide there are slightly over uh, two billion uh, uh, Christians. And among them, Protestants are probably the majority because they were growing faster than Catholics. Uh, there is about a billion less uh, Muslims. Uh, they are growing faster mainly because of polygamy, but that may change because the biggest Christian growth is in Africa, and Africans have a lot of kids no matter what religion they are. Uh, so that uh, evangelical Protestantism is something that very much interested me as a sociologist. It has no personal appeal to me, but um, it's a very interesting phenomenon and I think not one to be simply pushed aside as superstition or, or it's, it has some very positive aspects. Um, now the thing becomes more complicated that uh, um, Secularization theory, the idea that we become more and more secular, is wrong as a general statement, but it has one aspect which is correct. And as a result of that, in the last few years, I've been writing a theory of pluralism. Uh, why shouldn't I sell my own books? The original edition in English appeared uh, in 2014. It's called The Many Altars of Modernity. The re reference uh, illusion is to St. Paul's visit to Athens, told in the book of Acts, and he goes around and says, 
you people in Athens must be a very religious people. You have so many altars to many gods. And I will tell you about a god you haven't heard about, which is uh, Jesus, who uh, uh, was in Palestine and rose from the dead. So that many altars of modernity describes pluralism very well. Um, what is correct about this theory, secularization theory or secularity theory, is there is every modern society must have a modern sector. Uh, take one obvious example, medicine. Every modern hospital is a temple to modernity. It's based on science, it mostly is. It's highly technology, technologized, and uh, it operates in a purely secular frame of reference. Uh, uh, if you are uh, ill uh, and you live in a, near a hospital, you're, even if you're a Pentecostal, your main, your first step is call the doctor or go to the emergency room. Uh, at the same time, uh, every hospital is permeated with religion, especially in the United States. You have hospital chaplains, you have nurses and, and doctors who pray, you have visiting families, you're visiting clergy people. Um, so I call, I say, what I now call my theory, it's a theory of two pluralisms. There's the pluralism, usually when people say religious pluralism, they mean there are all these religions in one place living together more or less in civic peace. If there's some kind of religious freedom, they are not at each other's throat. Uh, give you an example close to home, a student of mine made a survey of Buddhist temples in the greater Boston area and he found about 60 of all branches of Buddhism ranging from Zen to Tibetan Buddhism. They're all represented in the greater Boston area. Uh, there are an estimated 800,000 converts to Buddhism in the United States. Uh, uh, that is converts, not people who have a ethnic background with Buddhist, Chinese or Japanese or Thai. No, they're converts, from mostly from Christianity, some Jewish, actually a lot of Jews, which is interesting. Why do so many Jews become Buddhists? I, I don't know the answer to that one, but it's an interesting question. Um, so the two pluralisms are, one is, all these different religious groups that coexist and talk to each other, they're not at each other's throats, they're protected by the state. But then there's also the, the, the pluralism between the different religious discourses and the secular discourse without which a modern society cannot exist. If modern society try to exist without modern science and technology, all planes would fall out of the sky, all the hospitals would have to close their door, and actually most people in these societies would die because the physical support structure would disappear. And that is also how do these different uh, uh, religions relate to modernity, and which is secular in its a very important part of its uh, uh, range. Uh, and uh, the idea that modernity and secularity go together uh, is partially true in those sectors of society. In a hospital, there's something to it. But uh, the theory, that point of view, exaggerates, exaggerates the range of the secular space. 
Very interesting. It becomes more interesting as you go along. So what I plan to do is, yeah, I think I'm, well, we started late. Um, I, uh, uh, I'll talk about three different areas in which I focus on religious pluralism. The other one, I don't think I have time for to go into detail of the, what I call the second pluralism with secularity and, um, well, I'll touch on it. Um, uh, this uh, pluralistic world in which we live, how does it affect the individual and specifically the religious individual, the person who believes in a religion or practices it, uh, and uh, the relationship of different institutions to each other, and thirdly, the state. How does the state deal with this? And if there is religious freedom of any degree, which certainly exists in all Western democracies, uh, uh, how does the state relate to that? It serves as a traffic cop to some extent. It protects the individuals. It, and then how does it define itself in religious terms? And this isn't always like the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, so that's the other area which I will at least touch upon. All right. The individual, the religious individual. Uh, what's the basic change of having many religions in one place with, which interact with each other? If they don't interact, nothing happens. I mean, they may still be at peace, but they don't talk to each other, in which case they don't influence each other. But if they talk to each other, uh, a problem arises. And that problem can be described rather simply. It's a beginning of relativization. In other words, if you are surrounded by people who are very different from you in their beliefs and their moral ideas, and they seem perfectly sane, you may even like them, you may fall in love with some of them, you begin to talk to them. And that gives you at least the idea that you don't have to be crazy or wicked to not be of your religion. And that makes a big difference, an enormous difference. And that even if you believe in a particular religion and practice its whatever its practice is, um, it becomes a matter of choice. And the big change for the individual who is religious is it's a change from destiny to choice. For most of human history, people's religion was something they were born with. I read somewhere that in ancient Greece, if two strangers met, uh, they would ask each other, which are your gods? And if you said you were from Athens, that meant you worshipped the gods of Athens, led, I guess, by Pallas Athene, the wonderful goddess of wisdom. And if you were from Corinth or from Thebes, you had worshipped another god. In other words, that was like if two strangers meet today, they can ask each other, what's your area code or your zip code? Uh, where do you come from? And that means what your religion is. That is not so long ago. Uh, take a part of the world I'm very familiar with, take uh, Germany, uh, the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which ended the murderous 30 years war, which killed about one third of the population of Central Europe, Catholics and Protestants fighting to the last uh, 
knife or whatever they had, musket, uh, and it ended it. The, the, the treaty ended it in, uh, in Westphalia, and uh, uh, it ended with a territorial formula. Uh, different states and church bodies signed this treaty, and the formula was, they had it in Latin, I won't say it in Latin, the ruler decides the religion of his state. If the ruler, the church usually was Protestant or Catholic, if a ruler decided he was going to be Catholic, everyone had to be Catholic who were his subjects. And if you don't like it, you could leave. There was a lot of migration going on, which is a big improvement. I mean, having to emigrate from your residence is better than being forcibly converted or executed. So it was a progress, and it held for quite a long time. And as recently, in, in, I would say, in Germany, which was most directly affected by the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, it was still true. If you came from southern Bavaria, you were probably a Catholic. If you came from northeastern Bavaria, you were probably a Protestant. Uh, that doesn't work anymore. People on top of each other with migration and, and uh, uh, people change religions. They intermarry. Uh, the territorial solution to the problem doesn't work. Um, the best solution, by the way, is some kind of religiously neutral state. I may still get to that. Um, but, um, uh, okay, uh, people talk to each other. And uh, so interreligious dialogue on one level or another has become a very common thing. And it's very hard to argue against it. It's a good thing if people talk to each other and peacefully agree or disagree, it's certainly better than if they kill each other. Um, but it's, uh, it, it occurs very much on the intellectual level. The Roman Catholic Church, after the Second Vatican Council, opened up a whole array of dialogue institutions within the Vatican, institution with what used to be called separated brethren, they now use a polite, more polite form, non-Catholic Christians, separate uh, uh, office for dialogue with Jews because relationship between Christianity and Judaism is a very special kind. Then there was uh, other religions. Uh, and then they decided they needed people who were of no religion. And they set up a, uh, uh, an organization within the Vatican which was called the uh, Council for Non-Believers. And the question is, who do you talk to? If you want to talk to Jews, you find your Catholic institution, you find the nearest synagogue. If you want to talk to a Protestant, you have many choices. But who are the non-believers? So they decided to call a conference to find out who the non-believers are. This was in 1969, and uh, uh, the Archbishop of Vienna, the Catholic Archbishop, although I'm not Catholic, he knew about me and he had written some things, and I was asked to organize the social science part of that conference was in 1969 in Rome. It was a fascinating conference. And uh, the main purpose, they organized the theologians, mostly Catholic. And I could invite anybody I wanted, no matter what religion. And they talked about the empirical data. And they published a book. And uh, we now know quite a bit of who are the non-believers. There's been a lot of research on that. They're not all atheists, but they don't fit into any particular denomination. Um, uh, so that's the intellectual level, and it goes on, and some of it is very interesting. 
next year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and uh, the Catholics and Lutherans and other Protestants are making lots of noises. We must overcome these divisions and we must understand each other. And the Pope has just visited Sweden and had a joint prayer service with the Lutheran bishops of Sweden. And they all make very friendly noises. They still can't unite completely, disagreements, but... Um, and that's very interesting. I mean, these are intellectual enterprises, which I find personally quite fascinating. But it happens all the time on a much more, what shall we say, vernacular basis, around, uh, uh, between neighbors, uh, around uh, water fountains in offices, uh, people's living rooms. Uh, take a very simple example, a, uh, say a, a Muslim couple from Pakistan who moved to England and uh, their uh, son is dating a Protestant girl and they are getting very serious to the horror of both families. So suddenly that takes place, what takes place in hotels and colleges with intellectuals sitting around tables with microphones and mineral water takes place on that very different level uh, every day among ordinary people. Uh, and for a sociologist, this is more interesting uh, because it affects much broader people. Fortunately, there are more concerned parents in the world than uh, intellectuals. So what happens between concerned parents, as a sociologist, I find very interesting indeed. Um, okay, for the individual believers, uh, religion is no longer a matter of destiny in most of the world. There are choices. Uh, you can choose to stay where you started out with. Then you are what I call the buts. That's a category. I mentioned the category of nuns, N-O-N-E. I like the category of but. When you ask somebody what is your religion, and say, well, I'm a Catholic but. And then comes a list of things that they don't believe in, that the church thinks they should believe in, beginning with papal infallibility and usually ends with contraception. Uh, 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 okay, that's very interesting. And so you get all these buts who have decided to stay where they were, but they have some questions about it. But then there are people who convert. And if there is any degree of religious freedom, they can. And the, my fictitious couple of lovers, one Muslim and one uh, Christian, uh, uh, they may decide to marry, in which case they have very interesting problems. What are they going to tell their kids? Do they send them religious instruction? Do they create their own little religious rituals? There are also interesting studies of that. Different people do different things. It's easiest if none of them really are very serious about their background. Then they can meet on the level of the shared skepticism. But they still have a problem what to tell the kids uh, who want to know why don't we go to, when my friends go to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever. Okay, that's the individual level. Um, very significant change. And then there is the relationship between religious institutions. Uh, and uh, staying a moment within the Christian realm, most uh, Christian churches, not just the Roman Catholic Church, all the Protestant churches began that way. 
started out as state churches, uh, which means that uh, in greater or smaller measure, uh, clergy could count on the police to fill their pews. Uh, certainly in Puritan New England, if you uh, early time of the Bay Colony, if you didn't go to church in Boston, then some police force would make you go to church. And then they couldn't, there were too many others around. And they had a halfway covenant, you could be a citizen of Massachusetts, but you, you were not a member of the church. And, and then almost everyone was, had the halfway covenant. And um, the Puritans couldn't make uh, their kind of Protestantism the state religion of Massachusetts. The Anglicans started in Virginia, and they failed for the same reason. There were too many of the others around. So the different institutions, given some degree of religious freedom, religious institution, Christian terms, the churches, but no matter what, mosques, synagogues, you name it, Buddhist temples in Boston, uh, they have to come to terms with each other. And generally, uh, certainly in the United States, the terms have been increasingly friendly. Uh, there are some who are more militant, evangelicals are still more militant, uh, but most, even the Catholic Church, doesn't try very hard to convert people. They witness to what they think is their truth, but they discuss it in a kind of amicable way, uh, which certainly contributes to civic peace. It would be very hard for me to think of reasons why one should bemoan that. Um, the change in the Catholic Church, by the way, has been uh, dramatic. There are almost exactly 100 years between the First Vatican Council and the Second Vatican Council. First Vatican Council met in, uh, in the 18, 1860s and the uh, Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. Tremendous difference in many ways. And I would say the most important difference is the First Vatican Council, which was convened by uh, Pius IX, who was a very conservative Catholic pontiff, uh, religious freedom meant that the church insisted on its right to proclaim its truth. And uh, the Vatican would make concordats, agreements with states, to guarantee Catholic education, Catholic freedoms. The Second Vatican Council convened them convened by John, uh, by, uh, John XXIII, he was very open-minded uh, Bishop of Venice, uh, Archbishop, I guess, of Venice. I would say it's most important for the rest of the world and for the Catholic Church was the Declaration of Human on, on Religious Freedom, which said that religious freedom is inherent to the dignity of human beings, no matter what they believe or even if they believe nothing. Part of a basic human right is the right to decide whether you believe what you believe in or if you want to, don't want to believe in anything. That's a 180 degree change and the Catholic Church has not been the same ever since. Uh, I'm tempted to tell stories, but I'm obliged by my religion to tell at least one joke. So I'll tell you one more joke about the individual level. Even if people don't tell you about their religion and you think, maybe they're not crazy, they seem to be nice people, maybe I should take seriously, maybe I was wrong in being so sure about my own faith. Their very presence bothers you. And there's a joke about that. In fact, it's the pluralism joke. 
uh, a young American goes to India, as many young people from the West go, to find out the depths of Oriental wisdom. And he finally comes on a holy man, they call them God-men in India, who sits in some cave somewhere looking at the Himalayas. And the young, what's making him a man, it could be a woman, gender is not the issue here. Anyway, this young American sits down and says, let me introduce myself, sir. He says to the holy man, uh, I'm American, I, my name is Hank Schulze, I come from Milwaukee, and I came to India to discover the meaning of life, and I understand you know what it is. Could you please tell me? Well, the holy man is in some kind of trance, he's sitting in the, in the uh, lotus position, and with his eyes fixed on the distant peaks of the Himalayas, and he says in a small voice, silent voice, uh, the meaning of life is between the eyes of the tiger. Well, the young American thing must be some profound wisdom. And he tries to figure out what the holy man meant. And suddenly, the holy man is still looking at the distant peaks. And suddenly, he tears himself away, looks at the young American. And sort of a shadow falls across his face. And he says, do you have any other suggestions? Uh, that is the pluralism joke. Okay. Uh, the presence of the non-believer, uh, even if he's a nice person, you begin to wonder, maybe he's got something. Do you have any other suggestions? That's the motto for the pluralist situation. Um, finally, the state. I've already talked about this. The state, well, uh, the territorial formula, formula of the Peace of Westphalia is, is not going to work very easily because people are on top of each other. They keep marry, intermarrying, moving. Uh, uh, what are you going to do in Boston? You have, even if you want to be a Buddhist, you have 60 of temples to choose from, let alone if you're a Protestant. I mean, the, the Protestant DNA is, is, is pluralistic. Uh, if I don't like my church, my friends and I will go down three blocks and start our own. And everyone is affected by this. In fact, I think the Jewish case is most interesting. For most of the history of Judaism, Judaism was a religion of the Jewish people. Some were more religious than others, a difference between the rabbis, but there were no denominations. In America, there are at least four. There's ultra-Orthodox, there's modern Orthodox, there's Reform, there's Conservatives, and there's a small but noisy group called themselves Reconstructionists. Uh, but in a way, every Hasidic sect is its own denomination. They're sometimes quite hostile to each other. So it's not enough to decide to be Jewish or remain Jewish. Uh, you have to decide which kind of Jewish you're going to choose from. It's the Protestant DNA which is becoming sort of universal, which is very interesting. Uh, conservative Catholics who don't like this uh, call it Protestantization. But that's wrong. I mean, it's not that Protestants go around missionizing people to have denominations. It's the same social conditions which create pluralism. Now the state. Um, I, I, I think, and again, this is, I, I very passionately believe in religious freedom. Uh, I agree with the Second Vatican Council, though I'm not convinced by other things they taught uh, or the Catholic Church teaches. But uh, yes, I think Religious freedom is a fundamental human right and related to basic human dignity. 
when our ancestors climbed down from the trees and one looked up at the sky and stood erect for the first time instead of like this and said, what does it all mean? That is a fundamental affirmation of human dignity and it's the right of everybody. Um, what is the best way of handling this? from the point of view of the state. The state can define itself in terms of a particular religion and still have religious freedom. Uh, easiest example to give to an American audience is England. Uh, the monarch, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, is still head of the Church of England. The bishops sit in the House of Lords. The, uh, when the Archbishop of Canterbury says something, although he has no power at all, even over the church, the media listen, people are interested in what he has to say, and yet it would be crazy to say that there's not religious freedom in, in, in the United Kingdom or in England. There is as much as in the United States. It's a different arrangement. The church is still officially the church of the state, but unofficially, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the last two of them, including the present one, have been very good at uh, religious freedom. The issue has been a lot mainly with Muslims in the last uh, decades. Uh, I think the most economic way, the most peaceful way of dealing with pluralism from the point of the state is some kind of religious neutrality of the state. Uh, I gave a lecture, this is now about five years ago, in Beijing at the uh, uh, Renmin University, which is one of the oldest universities in, in, in Beijing which, among other things, trains higher cadres of the Communist Party. And I made that argument. I said, uh, uh, if you want uh, civic peace, and they use a Confucian concept, if you want a harmonious society, you better at least don't persecute any large religious minority. I didn't say it's okay if you take little ones. They did, like the Falun Gong, which is a perfectly harmless kind of group meditation. Uh, I, don't, I know why they got upset by it. But uh, if you persecute Muslims or Buddhists or Christians, it's not a good idea. There are too many of them. In fact, there are more Christians in China now than are members of the Communist Party. It's expensive. Even if you are brutal, it's expensive to suppress that many people. It's easier if you let them do their thing. And they, they all nodded and took notes, uh, apparatchiks there. And now under uh, the present... Xi Jinping, I think he's more, less tolerant, but uh, he wants sort of totalitarian resurgence. But it is, I think, the most uh, economic thing. Um, what else should I still say? Uh, I have endless wisdom on the subject, but we don't have endless time. Um, let me say two more things. Um, and part of what ain't so, to use Mark Twain's term, is that modernity and religion are always in some kind of conflict. And I go, it ain't so. Many people combine uh, uh, even very strongly supernaturalist religion with being perfectly modern people. And you don't have to go that far. Uh, the, in the United States, uh, there's a very curious geographical overlap of the Bible Belt, where you have, you throw a rock and you hit five Southern Baptist churches, uh, and uh, the Sun Belt is one of the most economically dynamic regions of the country. Beautiful example is Houston, Texas, 
which has one of the best medical systems in the world. Brain surgeons, God knows what else, as good as any, I would say, in Boston. And yet, some of these people believe that the world is 2,000 years old, uh, 6,000, excuse me. And uh, God created the world about 6,000 years ago. And all these uh, dinosaurs are just practical jokes that God left around to confuse people. I think the world is, 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 I don't know how many, zillion years old. Uh, people combine that. And there is a way of describing this. And there's been lots of work on this. Uh, uh, let me give you one term which I've used a lot. It was coined by a very great social theorist, uh, Alfred Schütz, who died in 1959. Uh, relevant structure. Uh, human beings can operate with different relevant structures. Let me talk about this for, should I talk for two more minutes? Three more minutes, okay. Uh, let me give you an example. Give you two examples. Uh, not a joke. I promise you other jokes if you have time. Um, uh, I know a, um, a very successful surgeon in Boston who is a very practicing Orthodox Jew. In fact, in his, in his office, he, uh, he, I had a minor thing with him. I, I visited him once. Uh, he was a yamulka, and uh, he's very warm people, personally. He's a long tradition of Jewish medicine goes back to Maimonides, and his patients love him. He's a wonderful man, and he's also a good surgeon. Well, uh, I had some minor surgery with him, uh, through which I was conscious all the time. I, I wasn't under general anesthesia. And of course, he didn't wear his yamulka in his office, if he, in his practice in, in the hospital. Uh, he, if he did, one would know, because he was wearing this cap and the uniform of a surgeon. Well, while he does surgery, he cannot look things up in the Talmud. If there's some, he's very knowledgeable. He has a, belongs to, I discovered, a Talmud study group, uh, um, some yeshiva somewhere. Uh, and uh, he can't look it up in the, what, what's my next move in the surgery? He can't. He has to operate as if he were an atheist or a Buddhist or whatever. But uh, uh, perhaps he can pray during surgery, ask God to help him have a successful operation. But it's a different relevant structure. And uh, that is how people manage. We can analyze this very detail how it's done. And it's nothing unusual. We do it all the time. Uh, give you two examples. You uh, visit an art gallery and you see a picture which really draws you in. It's, it's a very powerful picture. And then you know, it's, a, it's not a museum, it's a gallery. You, you see there's an, a price attached to the, the pictures for sale. And suddenly it occurs to you, this might be a good investment. What have you done at that moment? You have switched from an aesthetic to an economic or a financial relevance. Okay? Other example is, uh, again, just as good. Again, very ordinary, nothing to do with religion. You are at a... Um, you're in a business negotiation. I don't know, you're an employee of a company or something and the negotiation is going on. And suddenly you're involved in this uh, discussion. It's important for you. And then, uh, uh, let's say it's a, this is a heterosexual couple. Uh, they mate for the first time and they get very attracted to each other. 
And suddenly, at least one of them has the idea, gee, I might want to know, get to know this person. Maybe he or she will have coffee with me after the meeting. What have you done here? You have switched from an economic, financial relevance to an erotic one. We do this all the time, and religion is no exception. So let me give you the one example which I love to give. The Pope. Uh, you know, he drives around in this white Pope-mobile, I'm sure you've seen pictures of it, which looks suspiciously like a golf, golf cart and goes through the vast expenses of, uh, expanses of Vatican City, which is about slightly larger than Central Park or smaller, I'm not sure. And let's assume he's on a very supernatural mission. Yet another Brazilian nun is going to be declared to be a saint. That extends the Pope's jurisdiction into the other world because if this person is now a saint, he or she can perform miracles. Good Catholics may pray to her for a miracle or for anything else. Uh, so it couldn't be more supernatural. It's the Pope and his representative as the vicar of Christ on earth. Well, he goes into his um, Pope mobile and it won't start. He's upset. His entourage are even more upset. What do they do? Well, We've recently, there was a note even in the New York Times, the Vatican had an official exorcist who just died. That's how it got into the obituary column of the New York Times. It's interesting. Uh, he was in his 90s, some monsignor of some sort, and he did exorcisms. They said how many exorcisms he's done over his lifetime, he, hundreds of them. Uh, he drives out demons. You can't have a more supernatural job in the Vatican than his. <laughs> Well, whom did the entourage of the Pope call? The exorcist? No, they called the garage, which I'm sure is a big one in the Vatican, and somebody came and fixed the Pope-mobile. So even the Pope operated here with two different relevant structures, one very religious and the other not religious at all. In fact, the Pope couldn't care at this moment what the religion was of the, of the mechanic who came, as long as he could make the car go. Um, well, I think I've exhausted my, my agenda.